podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Monday. It is the 17th of July. Hope you're all well. Hope you all had a very nice weekend. Right. We are going straight nostalgia once again today. We're looking at the 1999-2000 Premier League season as the world enters the new millennium, as we start the season with all the you know, doom and gloom mongers in the world, largely in America, we must say, but largely largely in America is, is the usual when there's doom and gloom, uh, talking about Y2K and how the world is going to collapse and all the computers and robots and everything are going to rise up and kill us all. There's a Premier League season taking place. Now, obviously in 98-99, Manchester United won the treble. Arguably the greatest achievement by any Premier League club. Certainly at that time, I know it, we've just had Manchester City do it, but I don't think things were as competitive for City as they were for United. It's probably subjective. But we go into this season, 99-2000, and United look, they look unstoppable, frankly. Arsenal, on the other hand, they're in a bit of flux. Arsenal are entering rebuild mode. And it was fairly clear from early that Arsenal were not quite as formidable as they had been. Obviously, in 97-98, Arsenal win the title by a point. 98-99, United win the title by a point. They'd been 
neck and neck for two straight years. But the Arsenal team was aging and was in need of rebuilding. And in their first 10 games of this season, they would lose three games. And part of it was betting in new players. Part of it was players that needed to be replaced were starting to really struggle to impact games and they were costing Arsenal points. But we'll jump in with the teams that we had this season. So Charlton, Blackburn and Nottingham Forest had been relegated at the end of the previous season. They're replaced by Sunderland, Bradford City and Watford. So Sunderland had been in the Premier League multiple times. Watford had not. This is their return to the top flight after 11 years. And for Bradford, 77 years after their last spell in the top flight of English football, they make their return. So we get a couple of new stadiums. Obviously, Sunderland by now have moved into the Stadium of Life, which remains their stadium to this day. At the time it was built, it was another one from the kind of stadium in a box group, the Mech Stadiums. Ayrson Park had been their ground for an immensely long time. No, Roker Park, not Ayrson Park. Ayrson Park was Middlesbrough. Roker Park had been their stadium for a very, very long time. The Stadium of Light was a huge upgrade in terms of modernising the stadium. But as with many of the newer stadiums, you're not getting the same type of charm. And a lot of them are very much the same design, just slightly tweaked. There, there was no real, there's no real creativity in a lot of these stadiums. Like you look at some of the modern stadiums and like, Bayern stands out. It's very unique. Uh, I think the new Tottenham Stadium is very unique. I like the Emirates, but it's a carbon copy of the Stadium Light in Lisbon, which is, again, a copy of other stadiums. So we don't see a lot of thought and effort, I don't think, put into the design of stadiums anymore. And it was the same back around this time. Um, However, we do get... Watford and Vicarage Road, which is where they still play today, which is a fantastic little stadium. Holds 22,000, four individual stands. If it's windy, if it's raining, it all affects the game. Vicarage Road is a good place to go and watch a game of football. But not quite as good as Valley Parade, which is... Again, one of the more charming, more unique stadiums around. I've always liked Valley Parade. I've been to it a couple of times. It's obviously the scene of a horrific disaster in 1985. One of the stadiums was made out of wood. One of the stands made out of wood, as many of the stands of that era were. And it caught fire. And unfortunately, that fire spread and ultimately 56 people were killed. And it remains one of the the biggest tragedies in the history of English football. And if you're ever at a game at Valley Parade, do make sure you go and pay your respects at the different memorials. One is in the city centre, one is at the stadium itself. Um, But yeah, Bradford come up into the league. They're a new club for us to wrap our teeth around. We, everybody knew of Watford from the 80s because you had that great team under Graham Taylor with John Barnes and Luther Blissett and others. Bradford were a different thing. They were an unknown commodity to many. So in terms of managers, um, Joe Kinnear had obviously had the heart issues. He'd been forced to resign as manager of Wimbledon. And Egil Olsen, legendary Norwegian manager, took over. Um, very individual, very unique character, insisted on buying a house that backed on to where Wimbledon trained and would walk through a little gate in his back hedge onto the what was basically a public park at the time and across to where Wimbledon would train wearing his wellies and would be seen taking training wearing Wellington boots. Sometimes he'd change into football boots, but mostly he'd stay in the wellies. Played very direct football, which was the Wimbledon way, nothing fancy. 
And all things considered, a bit of a disaster while he was there. But, you know, such is life. Uh, Ruud Hullett resigned as manager of Newcastle just after the season began. And Bobby Robson took over. Bobby Robson, obviously one of the greatest English managers there's ever been, had made his name with Ipswich from 69 to 82, had great success there. Their golden era became England manager, did very well with England. Obviously, was manager for 86 when Maradona did what he did. Was manager in 1990 when they got to the World Cup semi-finals. Left England, went to the continent, enjoyed great success at PSV Eindhoven. Was manager of Sporting Lisbon, was manager of Porto, was Barcelona manager for a year. Then Barcelona director of football when Louis van Gaal came in. Then he went back to PSV and then he took the Newcastle job. He was from the Newcastle area. It was his dream job, and ultimately it was his last job in football. Uh, He was 66 at the time he took the job, and everybody loved Bobby Robson. Everybody loved him. Unfortunately, he had multiple battles with cancer, and ultimately they were battles he, he was unable to win in the end. But you won't meet anybody, I don't think, either within football or just a football fan of any team that doesn't have great admiration for him, for his kindness. His footballing intellect, obviously, is is unquestionable. He was a great, great manager. But as a human being, he was widely regarded as just the nicest guy you could meet. And, you know, when you look at the success he had as a manager, won the UEFA Cup and the FA Cup with Ipswich, won the Eredivisie twice, won the Portuguese League twice with Porto, uh, won the Copa del Rey, the Super Cup of Spain, and the Cup Winners' Cup with Barcelona. Like, he was a manager that knew how to win things. Um, Southampton and Dave Jones came to a parting of the ways. I mentioned last week why that was with that case that came against them uh, that ultimately proved to be unfounded. Glenn Hoddle, returned to club management, having been England manager. Uh, Glenn Hoddle returned to club management with Southampton. Sheffield Wednesday sacked Danny Wilson partway through the season. Peter Shreves took over as caretaker till the end of the year. And Eggie Olsen was ultimately sacked on the 1st of May and Terry Burton took over. So our managers, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, John Gregory at Aston Villa, Paul Jewell at Bradford, Gianluca Vialli at Chelsea, Gordon Strachan at Coventry, Jim Smith at Derby County, Walter Smith at Everton, David O'Leary at Leeds United, Martin O'Neill at Leicester City, Jared Hooley at Liverpool, Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, Brian Robson at Middlesbrough, Bobby Robson at Newcastle, Peter Shreves ended the season with Sheffield Wednesday, Glenn Hoddle ended the season with Southampton, Peter Reid at Sunderland, George Graham at Tottenham, Graham Taylor at Watford in his second stint there, Harry Redknapp at West Ham, and Terry Burton ends the season as the manager of Wimbledon. Uh, Captains-wise, it's Tony Adams, Garrett Southgate, Stuart McCall, Dennis Wise, Gary McAllister, Daryl Powell, captain of Derby County, Dave Watson, Lucas Radaby, Matt Elliott, captain of Leicester, Jamie Redknapp, Roy Keane, Paul Ince, captain of Middlesbrough, Alan Shearer, Des Walker, Matt Letizia, Steve Bold, Saul Campbell, Rob Page, Steve Lomas and Robbie Earl. Two, two Jamaican captains or Jamaican internationals as captains in the Premier League this season. Uh, Kit-wise, Arsenal still only the one. They're only making kits for Nike at this point. Reebok have Aston Villa and Liverpool. Asics make a return with Bradford City. They also make the kits for Sunderland. You've got Umbro with Chelsea, Everton, Manchester United. CCFC Garments, which I assume stands for Coventry City Football Club Garments. I assume Coventry were making their own kits this year. Maybe they couldn't find a manufacturer that was offering a decent enough deal, but 
this is what they had. They had CCFC garments. You have Puma making the kits for Derby County, uh, Leeds United and Sheffield Wednesday. Fox Leisure making the kits for Leicester City. Iria with Middlesbrough. Saints making the kit for Southampton. Again, maybe they couldn't find a manufacturing deal and were making their own kits. Adidas only making kits for Spurs this year. Um, Oh, sorry, Newcastle and Spurs. Newcastle and Spurs. Um, Lecoq Sportif for Watford. Fila for West Ham. And Lotto for Wimbledon. Arsenal were sponsored by Sega and they had the Dreamcast logo on their shirt. Aston Villa had LDV Vans. Bradford City had JCT 600, who are a privately privately owned franchise motor firm that operates throughout Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, Derbyshire and the Northeast, with 53 dealerships between Boston and Newcastle. So that's who they are. Chelsea had Autoglass, Coventry had Subaru, Derby had EDS, Everton had one to one, Leeds had Packard Packard Bell, Leicester had Walker's Crisps, Liverpool had Carlsberg, United still had Sharp, Middlesbrough still had BT Selnet, Newcastle still had Newcastle Brown Ale, Sheffield Wednesday still had Sanderson, Southampton have a new sponsor this year, it's Friends Providence, who are a building society, I think. Sunderland were sponsored by Reg Vardy, Tottenham by Holston, Watford at Phones for You, Wimbledon still by, or sorry, West Ham still by Doc Martens, and Wimbledon had a new sponsor, a company called Tiny. Tiny Computers was a British computer manufacturing company based in uh, Salzford in Surrey. The company went into administration in January. 2002 and was subsequently bought out by rival OEM Time Group. So there we are. Um, Transfers. Once again, not in alphabetical order, so apologies, but it is what it is. Um, Chelsea signed Chris Sutton from Blackburn Rovers for huge money at the time. I think it was north of 10 million. They signed Gabriel Ambrosetti from Vicenza. Didier Deschamps legendary French captain who'd won everything from Juventus and Emerson Tome would arrive from Sheffield Wednesday. They also signed Mario Melchior on what would prove to be one of the worst free transfers of all time. Not the worst, but one of the worst. They also had George Weah in on loan. Sheffield Wednesday signed Gilles de Build. They signed Gerald Sebon, who I don't remember. Phil O'Donnell and Simon Donnelly both came down from Celtic on free transfers. Um, Bradford City, David Wetherill and Lee Sharp both arrived from Leeds. Neil Redfern came in from Charlton. Andy Myers, Matt Clark and a 35-year-old Dean Saunders arrived on free transfers. Watford signed Hyder Helgeson. They signed Nordine Vuter. Neil Cox Richard Johnson, Mark Williams, Dominic Foley, and Charlie Miller. Leicester City, Darren Eady, who's a good player, and Tim Flowers, who was past his best at this point, but was still a very good goalkeeper. They also brought in Stan Collymore on a free. Uh, Wimbledon signed Herman Horiderson, who was very good and played in England for a long time. Uh, Martin Anderson, Walid Badir, Chris Wilmot, Trond, Anderson, uh, they signed a bunch of Norwegians actually. Anderson, Anderson, Lund, Kjetil Vailer, who I don't remember, and Tor Pedersen, who I don't remember. Uh, Coventry City signed Robbie Keane from Wolves in a big money transfer. Also signed Mustafa Hadji, an attacking midfielder came in from Borussia, uh, sorry, from Deportivo La Coruña. Such an exciting player. Moroccan international. Brilliant dribbler. Really quick feet. Dribbled a lot like Luis Suarez. Looked a little bit awkward with it. It was a bit scruffy, but he was just un- he was unstoppable when he was in full flow. He's the first player that I can remember who observed Ramadan 
during the season, and it was public knowledge that he was observing Ramadan. Now, there might have been one earlier than him, but he's the first one I remember actually talking about it and talking about how difficult it was. And it's something that we don't factor in enough, is when Muslim players observe Ramadan and what they have to go through um, in terms of fasting, and yet they're still playing. I think it's, obviously now we see a lot of games will stop so that players can break their fast, which I think is really, really important. Um, but Mustafa Hadji was the first I can remember. Uh, again, open to be corrected on that, but certainly the first I remember who openly talked about it. They signed Cedric Russell, uh, Israel Zaniga, who I don't remember, Colin Hendry, who'd been at Blackburn, gone to Rangers, came back to the Premier League. They brought in Carlton Palmer, uh, who, like Hendry at this point, was well past his best. Uh, Raphael Nusso, don't remember. Andreas Dahl, don't remember. Yusuf Chippo, I think he was largely brought in to keep Hadji company. Uh, Manchester United signed Mikel Silvestre, Quinton Fortune, Massimo Taibi and Mark Bosnich. Bosnich was to be the first choice keeper. Taibi was to be the backup in the end. Both were disastrous. Peter Schmeichel left on a free um, once his contract is up and he joins Sporting. And these two were signed to replacement. Bosnich had been great for Villa for years, but had some issues off the field. Taibi just had some issues with his hands more so than anything else. Um, Newcastle signed Kieran Dyer from Ipswich. He'd come through at the same time as Titus Bramble. Might, might have been a year or two ahead of Bramble. And was really exciting. Made his debut for England playing as a right-back and was kind of in the mould of a Danny Alves type of right-back. And I do wonder if Kieran Dyer came through now, is that what he'd be? Would he be made into a, an attacking right-back rather than mostly playing in midfield? Now, he had some questionable behaviour off the field, but very, very talented. They signed Alan Goma, Marcelino, Diego Gavilan, Kevin Gallagher, Frank Dumas, Johnny Brain, Fumica, who I don't remember, Gary Caldwell will go on have a good career in, in Scotland, and a couple of loans that aren't really relevant. Uh, Middlesbrough signed Christian Ziga from AC Milan. Christian Ziga, who not all that much earlier than this had been one of the best left backs in the world and would obviously move on um, after, a, a, I think, a season really with, with Middlesbrough. They signed uh, Carlos Mirinelli. They signed Paul Ince, uh, Chris Bennion. Carlos Mirinelli was fun. He was one of the many next Maradonas, and unfortunately just wasn't to be for, for him or any of the others. Arsenal, now their big transfer was Nicolas and Elka leaving and going to Real Madrid. And of course, Arsenal famously put a lot of that money towards building their, their training ground. But they did sign players as well. They signed Silvino. They signed Stefan Malz. They signed Oleg Lushny. Davor Suker, who was an outrageous goal scorer. And they signed a very young, not at all centre forward, called Thierry Henry, who obviously would go on and maybe be the best Premier League player of all time. Um, he was coming off a rough season at Juve. would take him a little bit of time to get settled in at Arsenal and find his way. But obviously, what an incredible buy. Notable other move there was the promotion of Ashley Cole from the academy into the senior squad. Uh, Aston Villa signed George Boateng, David James, Najwan Garib, I don't remember him, uh, Neil Cutler, and Benito Carboni arrived from Sheffield Wednesday. Leeds United signed Darren Huckerby. They signed Michael Bridges. They signed Michael Jubry. They signed Danny Mills, Jason Wilcox, and Eric Backey. You're going to notice in the next couple of years, a lot of transfers in from Leeds. Now, much of it in this summer was funded by the sale of Jimmy, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank to Atletico Madrid. But just keep that in mind that this is around where Leeds really started to splash money around. And obviously, we know what, what that came to. West Ham signed Paolo Wanchop from Derby County. They signed Jermaine Defoe from Charlton's Academy. Gary Charles brought back to England from Benfica. 
Igor Stimach made the move from Derby. Rob Jones joined on a free from Liverpool. Injuries had just wrecked his career. And Stuart Pearce arrived from Newcastle. And the only thing I can remember about Stuart Pearce at West Ham was that he broke his leg and tried to play on because he was just mental, absolutely mental. Um, Sunderland signed, signed Stefan Schwartz, who'd previously been at Arsenal, had gone to Valencia and was now back in England. They signed Kevin Kilban, Milton Nunes, Karsten Fredgaard, don't remember him, John Oster, young player from Everton, uh, Steve Bold, legendary Arsenal centre-back, Eric Roy and Michael Ingham. Michael Ingham signed for £45,000 from Cliftonville. Sorry, €45,000 from Cliftonville. Uh, Southampton signed Joe Tessum. Imance Bledeles, don't remember him. Luis Boamorte. Tahar El Kalej. And Trond, Sod- Trond Sodveld, who again, I don't remember him at all. Uh, they also signed Dean Richards on a free from Wolves. Uh, Dean Richards was an outstanding young centre-back who, when he came through at Wolves, and he just had the worst luck with knee injuries. Uh, Spurs signed Chris Perry, who was a five foot eight centre-back, um, and obviously didn't quite make the grade at Spurs. Ivan Leonardson from Liverpool, William Corston from Vietas Arnhem, Gary Doherty from Luton, Anthony Gardner from Port Vale, Simon Davies from Peterborough, and Matthew Edrington from Peterborough. Uh, Doherty, Davies, and Edrington all had pretty good careers. I don't remember much of Anthony Gardner, I have to say. Liverpool signed Emil Heskey. They signed Didi Hamann, Vladi Schmitzer, Sandra Westerveld, Stefan Ancho, Titi Camera, Sammy Hippia, and Eric Meyer. Everton signed Kevin Campbell, brought him back to England from Trabzonspor. Abel Xavier arrived in England from PSV Eindhoven. Mark Pembridge came back to the UK from Benfica. I assume Graeme Souness was responsible for him being over there. Joe Max Moore, American, came in from New England Revolution. And Mark Hughes joined on a free from Southampton. Derby County signed Seth Johnston from Crewe. Branko Struper, who I don't remember at all, from Grank, uh, sorry, sorry, from Genk. Uh, Lee Morris from Sheffield United. That was big money at the time. He didn't, he didn't work out for them. And Andy Oakes from Hull. They also signed Craig Burley from Celtic. And that is it. That is our transfer. So how does our league table pan out? Uh, Manchester United top, 18 points clear of Arsenal. So after one point gaps in the previous years, United, who only really had the bit of disturbance in goal, were able to just find a way. They scored 97, conceded 45, which is quite high, um, but comfortable winners, more than comfortable winners at the top of the Premier League. Arsenal second, Leeds third, Liverpool fourth, Chelsea fifth, Aston Villa sixth, Sunderland in their first season up, seventh, great performance by them. Leicester in eighth, West Ham ninth, then it goes Tottenham, Newcastle, Borough, Everton, Coventry, Saints, Derby, Bradford City, surviving, just about, but surviving, Wimbledon relegated, Sheffield Wednesday relegated, and Watford relegated. Unfortunately, losing Wimbledon was a a big blow because they were such a unique team. They were so much fun as a club. They were this ragtag bunch. They didn't have their own stadium. They didn't really have a training ground. But they survived and they survived and they survived year after year after year. Like they came up into the top flight in 1986 against all odds. They had no business in the top flight. Like, in 1977, they were playing non-league football. They spent two. They got promoted, spent two years in Division Four, got promoted again, got relegated back to Division Four, came straight back up into Division Three, got relegated back to Division Four, then had successive promotions from Division Four to Division Three to Division Two, 
two years in Division Two, up into the top flight, and no one thought they'd survive. But they didn't just survive. They finished sixth in their first season. Then they finished seventh and won the FA Cup. Then 12th, then 8th, then 7th, then 13th, then 12th, then 6th, then 9th, then 14th, then 8th. And then it started to get really rocky there. 15th, 16th, and 18th. Their three worst performances in the top flight, back to back to back. But up until those seasons, they never looked even remotely possible that they'd get relegated. And the thing is, they were never back up. They've never been back up since. They played two years in the in Division 1, which we now call the Championship. And then they moved. They moved to Milton Keynes. They had two more years as Wimbledon playing in Milton Keynes. And then they were rebranded as MK Dons. And the name Wimbledon threatened to disappear. But obviously, we now have AFC Wimbledon, who were founded around the time of the move to Milton Keynes, but were playing at the very, very, very bottom of the English football pyramid and had to work and work and work. They started off in the combined counties Premier League. And they had to work their way all the way up They finally got into the Football League after nine years of graft in non-league. League League One is as high as they've been. But maybe someday we'll get AFC Wimbledon in the Premier League. Now, they're in League Two as we speak, and it's a bit unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, They were lucky enough to survive in League Two last last season, nearly went down into the Championship. uh, conference again but they finally have their own stadium after years of ground sharing and all kinds both as Wimbledon and then as AFC Wimbledon ground shares public spaces whatever Plough Lane which is the historical home of Wimbledon Football Club which was deemed unsuitable for top flight football in the 80s there's a new stadium there it's a fantastic little stadium Holds about nine and a half thousand. If you're in the area, I recommend having a a visit, supporting this club because this club matters. Because in 2007, MK Dons gave up their right to the history of Wimbledon FC, so AFC Wimbledon technically owned the right to that historic. Time in Wimbledon Football Club's history. So, like I say, we haven't seen Wimbledon back up since then. And it's a shame. It really is because they were a team you hated. You hated to see them. You didn't want to play Wimbledon. But you had to admire what they were about at that time. Likewise, uh, Sheffield Wednesday going down. And they have not been back up. They've had a very, very tough time of it. Now, they came up into the top flight in 1984, were relegated again in 89, sorry, in 90, came straight back up, stayed in the Premier League. When I was growing up, they were a Premier League team. One of my good friends growing up was the only Sheffield Wednesday fan that I knew, the only one from our town, maybe the only one from Ireland. I have since met a few others, but they're all from Sheffield. Um, he decided to support them because they had, I think, the lowest home attendance or something one week. Uh, I think that's basically what it was. He looked at, I think they were they were fairly crap. They had a low home attendance at a game. It might have been that they were playing someone that no one wanted to see. And he decided to throw his support behind them. So, yeah, you have that. Um, but Sheffield Wednesday have been a, obviously a, a big club for a long time. But they go down... They spend two years in what we now call the championship. In year three, they get relegated again into Division Two. They come straight back up into League One, then straight back up again into the championship. And um, 
they've been sort of yo-yoing between League One and the Championship ever since. And they're back in the Championship for next season, having been promoted this past year. And I really do hope that we will see them back in the top flight at some point soon. Um, Don't have any real affinity for either uh, Sheffield club, but I've always just felt more, I don't know, maybe it's because Wednesday were a top flight club all the time when I was a kid and the Blades weren't. But either way, uh, it's a shame to see what happens to these clubs because Wimbledon got bought out, got moved, basically got forgotten about. Nobody likes MK Dons now. That's basically how, how things are. And Sheffield Wednesday just had a bunch of bad owners and it's just really unfortunate. It's just really unfortunate that these clubs fall into the hands of the wrong people. Um, Top scorers, Kevin Phillips of Sunderland, 30 Premier League goals. Alan Shearer had 23, Dwight York had 20, Michael Bridges and Andy Cole had 19, Thierry Henry had 17 in his first season, Paolo Di Canio had 16, Chris Armstrong, Stephanie Everson, and Niall Quinn had 14. So you have that Sunderland pairing of Phillips and Quinn doing very well, and obviously the United pairing of Shearer and Cole, as well as the Spurs pairing, Armstrong and Everson. Patrick's Michael Bridges, Andy Cole scored four in a game against Newcastle. Kevin Phillips, Alan Shearer scored five in an 8-0 win for the tune over Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Noanku Kanu got a hat-trick. Mark Overmars got a hat-trick. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer scored four, including a perfect hat-trick in a 5-1 over Everton. Nick Barnby scored a hat-trick for Everton. Stan Collymore got a hat-trick for Sunderland. Sorry, for, for Leicester against Sunderland. Uh, Everson got a hat-trick. York got a hat-trick. Paul Scholes got a hat-trick in a 7-1 win over West Ham. And Dean Windass scored a hat-trick for Bradford against Derby. Top assists, David Beckham and Nobby Solano with 15 each. De Canio had 13. Giggs had 12. Burkamp, 9. Barnby, Henri, Everson, Yonk and Merson all had 8. Manager of the month, Alex Ferguson in August, Walter Smith in September, Peter Reid, October, Martin O'Neill, November, Gerard Houllier, December, Danny Wilson in January, Bobby Robson in February, Alex Ferguson, March and April, and unsurprisingly, Alex Ferguson was voted manager of the season. Player of the month, Robbie Keane in August, Muzzy Izzet in September, Kevin Phillips in October, Sammy Hippia in November, Roy Keane in December, Southgate in January, Paul Merson in February, Dwight York in March, and Thierry Henry in April. Uh, we had the Premier League Player of the Season was Kevin Phillips. The PFA Player of the Year was Roy Keane. The Football Writers Player of the Year was Roy Keane. And the PFA Young Player of the Year was Harry Kuehl. Your PFA Team of the Year, Nigel Martin in goal. Gary Kelly, Yapstam, Sammy Hippie and Ian Hart as the back four. Beckham, Keane, Vieira and Kuehl as the midfield. Andy Cole and Kevin Phillips as the forwards. If you hear strange noises behind me, that is just Molly making noises because she likes to make noises. Molly has to be in the office with me today because she can't be trusted. She has a cut on her tail and will not leave it alone. She's pulling off bandages. So now she's under house arrest and she's not very happy about it. She's got her back turned to me because she's sulking and wants me to know that she's sulking. Um, anyway, there we go. That is the 99-2000 Premier League season. All in all, not the best season we'd had. Not the worst, but not the best season we'd had. There was some good football played, but it wasn't a competitive season at the top of the league because United were just so far and above the best team. Arsenal, like I said, were rebuilding, coming to the end of the Dixon, Adams, Keown, Winterburn era. David Seaman was aging out. There was the the Anelka change. There was a lot going on for the Gunners, but we'll see over the next couple of years they do roar back. In the FA Cup, Chelsea were crowned FA Cup winners, beating 
Aston Villa 1-0. Roberto Di Matteo, who loves a cup final goal, scoring the only goal of the game. Uh, their team on the day, Ed De Hoy in goal. Mario Melchior, Marcel Desailly, Frank Leboeuf and Celestine Babiaro as the back four. Didier Deschamps, Roberto Di Matteo, Dennis Wise, Gus Poyet as the midfield. They played a diamond. Zola and Weya up front. Notable, only one English player. And I think back to when we did the early seasons of the Premier League and there was very few foreign players. And now you've got a Chelsea team playing an FA Cup final. And of their 16-man squad, there's only four English players and they have a foreign manager. This is the modernisation of English football. Uh, Carlo Cuticini, John Terry, John Harley, Jody Morris and Tori Andre Flo on the bench. Morris and Flo came on for the last couple of minutes um, to see out the game. For Villa, they had David James in goal, Mark Delaney, Ugo Ekiog, Gareth Southgate, Gareth Barry and Alan Wright in a back five. And Ekiog, Southgate and Barry back three is really strong. Um, George Boatang, Paul Merson and Ian Taylor in midfield. Bernito Carboni playing just off Dion Dublin. Uh, Julian, I'm sorry, Peter Enkelman, who's probably best known for allowing a ball to slip under his foot. Uh, as the backup goalkeeper, J. Lloyd Samuel, who unfortunately lost his life a few years ago, was a really good fullback to play either side. Uh, he was on the bench. Steve Stone, Lee Hendry, and Julian Joachim uh, came on for Ian Taylor, Benito Carboni, and Alan Wright. In the League Cup, Leicester City beat Tranmere Rovers 2-1. Two goals in the game from Matt Elliott, the captain and centre-back, uh, 29 and 81. The game had been 1-1. David Kelly scored on 77 to give Tranmere hope of what would have been a massive, massive upset. Um, Leicester's team, Tim Flowers, Frank Sinclair, Matt Elliott, Jerry Taggart, back three, uh, Robbie Savage, right wing back, Steve Guppy, left wing back, Muzzy is it, Neil Lennon and Stefan Oakes as the midfield three. Pesky and uh, Tony Cotty up front. Liverpool would buy Pesky shortly after this. Uh, Peggy Erfix said Phil Gilchrist, Theodorus Zacharikas, Andy Impey and Ian Marshall on the bench. Marshall and Impey came on for Cotty and Oakes respectively. The Tranmere team, Joe Murphy, Ruben Hazel. Dave Shaloner, Clint Hill, who I think played for QPR for a number of years, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. Tranmere was the club he came through with. Uh, then he went to Oldham, Stoke, Palace, QPR. I played in the Premier League for QPR. Forest, Rangers, and finished off at Carlisle. Um, Gareth Roberts at left back, who again had, a, had himself a decent career. Over 22 years, played over 600 league games. Andy Parkinson, Gary Jones, Nick Henry and Alan Mahan in midfield. David Kelly and Scott Taylor up front. John John Achterberg, now the goalkeeping coach at Liverpool. Steve Yates, Andy Thompson, Alan Morgan and Alan Black as the subs. Yates came on for Andy Parkinson. John Aldridge was the Tranmere manager and obviously Martin O'Neill was the Leicester manager. And that's it. That is our 99-2000 season. A good season, not a classic, not one you'd immediately be drawn back to, but certainly, certainly a good season with lots of good players doing lots of good things. We will take a break. And when we come back, we've got days worth of gossip to get through. So I will see you after this. Right, welcome back. So, uh, news-wise, over the weekend, obviously, the big news was that Arsenal finally unveiled Declan Rice. Uh, They were finally able to find the financing to afford the more significant upfront payment than what they initially had hoped to pay. And it all kind of went off as a bit of a damn squib because no one really cared because 
it had already been so long. Everybody knew it was happening. Obviously, Arsenal fans cared, and that's that's the only group that really matter here is the Arsenal fans. Um, but just on a general scale, given the fee, there wasn't nearly as much pomp and circumstance around it as you would expect for a £105 million transfer. The most expensive um, English player of all time. Now, Jude Bellingham potentially will pass that if he hits his add-ons at Real, but for now, it's Declan Rice. Second most expensive transfer in Premier League history after Enzo Fernandez. The list of the top 10 most expensive Premier League transfers doesn't make good reading and certainly doesn't make good reading if you're a Manchester United fan because names like Anthony, Maguire, Pogba, Lukaku, Sancho is just outside the top 10, I think. If he's in it, it's even worse for them. But yeah, none of them really a success. Um, Bayern Munich are growing more confident of buying Harry Kane is the latest reports on that one. And there's talk that Juve would be willing to sell Dusan Vlahovic. And I do wonder if Spurs might just be better off selling Kane, get 80 million, turn around, buy Vlahovic. You'd probably get him for 65 and then put that 15 million towards something else. Vlahovic is not as good as Kane, but he'll get you a load of goals. He really will get you a load of goals. Uh, So that's maybe one to keep an eye on. Manchester United are on the brink of a deal for Andre Onana. Fee believed to be around £46 million, which I think would make him the third most expensive keeper of all time after Kepa and Alison Becker. Um, I think it's an overpay. He's very good with his feet, but he is error-prone, and he's not a great shot stopper. He's not great on crosses. He's not great in terms of concentration. Brilliant business for Inter, though. They got him for free last summer, so they'll be very, very happy. On the topic of Manchester United, Harry Maguire has officially been stripped of the captaincy and has posted on social media that while he's upset and not happy about the decision, he does accept it. Uh, I would imagine the next step is Harry Kane leaving Manchester United. I don't know that they'll get much of a fee for him. I certainly don't think the £50 that they want is going to come through. If it does then it needs investigating because he has been poor since joining them. Dreadful the last two seasons. And really and truly, if you're buying Harry Kane, or sorry, Harry Maguire rather, you can only really play one way, which is a nice deep block with your midfield sat right in front. Do that and you can have success with them. The problem is the teams that do that can't really afford Harry Maguire. And if they can just about scrape the fee together, even say at 35, 40 million. They can't afford the wages he's on now, which means United will have to make up the contract. So interesting one to watch over the next few days. Uh, Let's keep going. Paris Saint-Germain. So we're into the gossip then. Paris Saint-Germain are attempting to hijack Bayern's bid for Harry Kane. I don't think Harry Kane would go there. I really don't think he would go to PSG. Um, I think he will end up at Bayern. Chelsea are looking at making a move for Dusan Vlahovic. Manchester City have made Bayern Munich's French fullback Benjamin Pavard their number one target if Kyle Kyle Walker goes the other way. I I don't really like either move. To be honest, Walker to to Bayern, they'll need some more pace in that defence, so that's why he makes a bit of sense for them. Pavard is very good on the ball, like a really good passer, but defensively, he's a bit questionable. Um, City are trying to keep Walker. I think that's their preference, but if they sell him, they might, they might make a decent bit of money on him. Uh, Barcelona are trying to sign Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Chelsea. No, sorry, Marseille are trying to sign Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Chelsea. They're also hoping to bring in Illiman and Jai, having agreed a five-year contract with the Senegalese forward, but they are yet to submit a bid. Um, And Sheffield United seem to want to keep him, so we'll see how that plays out. Liverpool will consider joining the race for Moises Caicedo. If Jordan Henderson and Fabinho move to Saudi Arabia, Liverpool are expected to accept a bit of around 10 million for Henderson. I think they'll get 
12 to 14, and I think they'll settle for that. They say they want 18 to 20. I think they'll take 12 to 14. I don't think they're overly upset about the prospect of losing him. Bayern Munich forward Sadio Mane's representatives have met with Al Nazir to discuss a move to Saudi Arabia for the Senegalese forward. Fulham have rejected a second bid from Al Halil for Alexander Mitrovic. He's agreed terms, though, which isn't a great sign for Fulham. Fulham have joined West Ham in the race to sign James Ward-Prowse. Fulham have offered Marco Silva a new contract, but he's not close to signing it. I wonder if he's going to wait and see what happens with Mitrovic before making a decision. PSG have targeted Victor Osman not to replace Kylian Mbappe, but to help convince him to sign a new contract. That would be one way to do it, I suppose. Aston Villa will listen to offers for Luca Digne, with Napoli a potential destination for the French left-back. Bayer Leverkusen have told Aston Villa they will need to break their transfer record to sign Moussa Diaby. Aston Villa transfer records. Aston Villa's record transfer. Let's have a gander and see. Emi Buendia, 35 million. I don't see a problem. I think Villa could go to 45 for Diaby and be confident they're getting they're getting decent value there, given his talent and his age and his potential. Brentford have submitted a 13 million bid for Habib Diallo as they look to beat West Ham to a deal for the Senegalese striker. Obviously, they're in need of a striker with the Ivan Tony suspension. Manchester United have turned down an initial offer from Galatasaray for Fred. Barcelona are now looking at other options, having decided they can't afford to sign João Canseo, even on loan. Former City youth player Pablo Mafio was one of the other options for Barca, but Sevilla are also interested. Ajax have been contacted by West Ham over the availability of Edson Alvarez. He'd be a really good signing for West Ham. I don't like the idea of them signing Zakaria. But Alvarez, it's not that I don't like Zakaria. I just don't trust him to stay fit all the time. He's not as explosive as he was prior to the bad ankle injury, so that would concern me. Luton are closing in on the loan signing of Manchester City's Burkina Faso defender, Issa Kabor. He's very good. Be a great signing for Luton. Nottingham Forest striker Sam Surridge is set to join Nashville SC with the clubs agreeing a 5 million fee. That's a fair price. I think he'd do really well in MLS. Fulham and Crystal Palace have both inquired about Che Adams. An Everton training video, which has now been deleted. (laughs) So basically, one of the coaches mentioned the fact that they're hopeful of signing Johnny Evans as their next incoming after Ashley Young. Uh, Danny Drinkwater says he wants to rejoin Leicester. Italian 4th Division club Trapani are hoping to sign Gervinho, who spent last season with Greek side Aris. Um, I would have thought he could play at a higher level than that. He had his best years in Syria. He was great for Roma. He was brilliant for Parma. He was a lot of fun. Um, Obviously didn't go well when he was at Arsenal, but a very talented player, nonetheless. Uh, moving on to Sunday's news. Frankie Dion could be offered to Manchester City as part of a swap for Bernardo Silva. No, he couldn't. Uh, Uli Hunas believes Tottenham striker Harry Kane will move to Bayern this summer. Tottenham are exploring a move for Dusan Vlahovic. That would be good. Newcastle have reportedly tabled an £82 million bid for Napoli's 22-year-old Georgian winger, Kvica Kvalachkelia. Let's be really clear here. The source of this is an outlet in Brazil who've been aggregated by a really bad outlet in Italy. So unless you're choosing to believe that an outlet in Brazil have the inside track on a move by Newcastle for a Georgian player from an Italian club, I think we can put that one safely in the bin. The Glazer family could be forced to approve a deal for Rasmus Hoysland, a midfielder's Manchester United's value could plummet. I really don't think that's any way a possibility or a reality. Wolves are set to submit a bid worth more than £20 million for Alex Scott. Really good player. 
Really good player. Uh, Tottenham, sorry, Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson has agreed personal terms with Al Etifak. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is ready to move to Marseille. Uh, Johnny Evans, yada yada, could go to Celtic, uh, could go to Everton, could stay at Leicester. Leicester are looking to take Cesare Caicedo on loan from Chelsea. That would be a good move for him and a great get for, for Leicester. He's probably a little bit too good for the championship, but he, he I think he'd thrive there. Uh, Riyad Mahrez is wanted by Al-Ali. Alan St. Maximin has also been approached by Al-Ali. That's a little bit spooky, given that Al-Ali are owned by the PIF as our Newcastle. So a little bit of uh, sports washing and uh, money laundering going on, it would seem. Chelsea and Belgian striker Romelu Lukaku will now not join into Milan and will either join Juventus or Saudi Arabia, or a club in Saudi Arabia. The Juventus deal, like if they sell Vlahovic to bring in Lukaku, he will score goals. There's no question he'll score goals in Syria. But I just, I think it's a downgrade. And he's like seven years older, six years older. But you'll make it, you should make a decent amount of money. John Joe Shelby uh, is nearing a move away from Nottingham Forest after he was left out of their preseason training camp. Inter Milan have turned their attention to Fowler and Balogun as their preferred alternative to Lukaku. I don't think Balogun really works with Latour Martinez. Um, and I've seen prices of 50 million quoted. Inter aren't paying that. Uh, Sheffield United are considering a move for John Joe Shelby. Juventus are pursuing Frank Kessie. And Danny Drinkwater is still telling everybody who, who will listen that he'd like to go back to Leicester. Uh, final day of gossip is today. Liverpool are eyeing up a deal for Calvin Phillips. I don't hate it. I really don't hate it. As long as he's one of two and the other one's Romeo Lavia, I don't hate it at all. After pulling out of the race for Romelu Lukaku, Inter have set their sights on Alvaro Morata or Balogun. Morata is much more likely and a better fit. Morata as the selfless grafter next to Laturo, that would work. Uh, Eric Ten Hag is willing to sell Scott McTominay. I'm not surprised by that at all. I don't think anybody should be. Uh, West Hammer and talks to sign Joe Polina. Now, that report says that he's valued at 40 million. Fulham have been quoting 60 to 70 million for him. I don't see West Ham pulling that one off. David De Gea looks set for a move to Saudi Arabia because, of course, he's a free agent, he's a big name, and he's out of contract. And he's old, so they're going to want to you know, give him the big bag and not have to pay a transfer fee. Chelsea have rejected Fulham's first bid for Callum Hudson-Odoi. I really want him to go to go to Crystal Palace if Wilf leaves. Giovanni Lo Celso is nearing a move away from Spurs as Napoli open talks for the playmaker. I, I did think he'd end up at Villa, to be honest. Uh, more nonsense about Kvalicelia. Nottingham Forest are keen to complete the signing of 19-year-old Brazilian striker Mateus Nascimento from Botafogo. Okay. Uh, Al-Halil are nearing a deal for Mitrovic. We'll wait and see on that one. West Ham are interested in Jonathan Tah, but it looks like he will stay at Bayer Leverkusen. Leicester City and Burnley are set to go head-to-head for the loan signing of Cole Palmer. Burnley, as a Premier League club, makes more sense for him than dropping down into the Championship. He's Proven he can play at the Premier League level. Following his five million return to Paris Saint Germain, Xavi Simmons is nearing a loan move to RB Leipzig. I hate the fact that he moved back to PSG. I wish he'd stayed at, Ein- at Eindhoven. Bayern Munich are open to selling Leon Goretzka if they receive a bid above thirty-four million. Ivory Coast defender Eric Bailly and Brazilian defender Alex Telles failed to show up for the first day of Manchester United's pre-season training amid plans for them to be sold. They were probably told not to show up, let's be fair, and not try and disparage the players on the way out the door. Right, folks, that's it. That's all I've got for today. Thank you, as always, and I will see you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.